0: Welcome to the On Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson, and with me is Aaron Miller. We're back to our usual format this week after we did sort of an event-based episode last week off the back of the Apple event. Uh, So we will have a news roundup, a question of the week, a third segment, and then our weekly pick at the end. The news roundup will have three news topics, as usual. Uh, First off, we'll talk about uh, the Galaxy Note 7 from Samsung and the problems that they've been having with those exploding. Um, The second one will be... The story that emerged in the last couple of weeks about Amazon trialing a 30-hour work week for some of its workers. And we'll just talk about that in the context of uh, some of the the sort of prevailing narrative about what it's like to work at Amazon, which we've talked about before. And then the third news roundup topic will be Uh, The news that Instagram is uh, extending its filters, which have previously been available only only to essentially celebrities, uh, to every user. And this is a way of combating abuse. And so we'll talk about that a bit in the context of the abuse problem at Twitter as well. Uh, Our question of the week uh, this week is off the back of a piece that I did for Tech Pinions Insiders on Tuesday this week, which is uh, about Google or other Alphabet's Verily division, which is their life sciences division. It used to be called Google Life Sciences and so the question is, what is Verily and what does it do? And so we'll talk about uh, that division of alphabet and talk about uh, what it does, uh, how it does it, uh, how it works with partners specifically, and, and also how it's perceived within the broader life sciences community. And then our third segment Uh, We're going to talk about uh, a few things that all kind of go together. Uh, The reviews for the new iPhones and Apple Watches landed uh, in the last couple of days, uh, and along with the software updates for iOS and watchOS. And so we're going to kind of bundle all those up together and talk about the reviews and our own experience with uh, the new software and so on. And then we'll wrap up, as usual, with our weekly pick. And Aaron will have a recommendation of a a TV show uh, at the end there for us. Uh, so let's start out with our news roundup. And first off, the, the Galaxy Note 7. And, and just as a sort of preview, we think we're probably going to do our question of the week next week on product recalls in general, uh, sort of sparked by what's been going on here with the Note 7. But we'll cover it briefly here today. So, Aaron, what were your thoughts about this?
1: Uh, it feels like it's just getting worse and worse for Samsung, which uh, is kind of sad to watch. There are more stories popping up. Um, I know I, I saw one a headline about a six-year-old and... New York City, they got burned by an exploding Note Seven. Um, there are now airlines that, uh, before they take off, are requesting all Samsung phone owners to turn off their phones, and that's that's model. That's not discriminating, according to model. They're basically saying, if you have a Samsung phone, please turn it off, uh, which is typical of the over precaution, right, that we're used to with airlines when it comes to electronics, but. Um, you know, the idea is if you have a Galaxy 7, for example, you're, you're on that list of people that should be turning off their phones. And that's just, that's just really, I mean, it's the nature of these, and we can talk about this more next week. But, you know, when you have a recall and, and people aren't familiar with the technical details, it becomes a brand recall more than it does a product recall. And um, Samsung is feeling the pain of that right now.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It feels that way for sure. And then they're not helped by the fact that they decided to align the product naming this time around. So the Note 7 uh, and the Galaxy S7 in the same year. And so if all you're seeing is headlines that have Samsung and 7 in them and you have a Galaxy S7, you might well think that you're caught up in that too, even though it obviously doesn't apply. And so that probably isn't helping matters. And I suspect that's why airlines and other people are having people shut down, devices uh, of all kinds from Samsung just because people may not even know the exact name or model number of their phone and they just want to be cautious about it. Um, But it obviously isn't helping Samsung's brand perception right now and it's terrible timing obviously as well just given how well reviewed the Note 7 was before all this stuff started coming out. um, You know, it was going up against the iPhone, it was released a couple weeks beforehand to kind of try to capture some sales then and, you know, in the end it's ended up where The Note 7 wasn't even on sale in the week that the iPhone pre-orders opened up. They probably still won't be on sale by uh, this Friday when the iPhone goes on sale in stores. And so, you know, if you were trying to decide between the two, well, you can buy one of them, but not the other one. And that's clearly not what Samsung would have wanted. So this whole thing has kind of spiraled out of control. And I saw someone uh, commenting on the share prices, and I can't remember exactly what the time period was, but in the last few days, essentially, Apple's uh, valuation has gained about $50 billion and Samsung's has dropped by about half that, so about $25 billion. So, uh, you know, it's been significant impact for Samsung, um, both from, the, you know, the actual cost of the recall, but also the perceptions around all of that as well.
1: Yeah, when we talk about this next week, we'll talk about examples of brands that um, paid a heavy price for a product recall and other ones that rebounded. There are some interesting mm. insights there, I think, for us to discuss next week.
0: Yeah, that would be great. Um, okay, well, the second News Roundup topic is this 30-hour work week that's been trialed at Amazon. Um, basically, this only affects a few employees. I think it's tech uh, workers within the HR department, whatever that means, but uh, it sounds like they're working sort of limited hours uh, on four-day-a-week basis. Um, so uh, it's interesting in the context of both Amazon's reputation as a place that can be hard to work at, and the New York Times did a piece on this, Uh, A while back, uh, sort of a deep expose of working conditions among the sort of white-collar workers at Amazon. Um, And uh, it's also interesting in the context of the fact that Amazon's subsidiary, Zappos, which they acquired a few years ago, uh, has been one of the most prominent companies to experiment with this holacracy uh, form of of employee management, this very sort of non-stratified and much looser than... Than most uh, systems are. And so, you know, this isn't the first time that an, a part of Amazon has experimented with a different way of uh, managing workers and so on. But, Aaron, what was your sense of, of this news and why it's important?
1: Well, part of why it was interesting to me is I have colleagues in my department who've done research on, on four day work weeks. Um, and this is where you still work 40 hours a week. So you do four 10 hour days instead of five oh, eight okay. hour days. Mm-hmm and the research on it is pretty strongly in favor of 4-day work weeks. Uh, they they tend to improve quality of life for the employees obviously because you get essentially a 3-day weekend every week. Um it's a chance for them to get a lot of stuff done that they wouldn't get done otherwise. Um in addition to that, uh they work well for employers. Um they, you know employers save money by closing the office for an extra day a week. Right. And and uh, they, uh, they also find that productivity stays where it belongs or even goes up. Mm. Uh, so so I, I won't be surprised at all if Amazon sees improvements here. And, and there's an element of this that I think is important to point out is that the 30 hour week still comes with benefits. So the people that are working 30 hours a week for Amazon are, are still getting employee benefits because um, the cutoff is at you know, 29 hours um, before you, you know, are required to provide certain kinds of benefits. And uh, and I think that's a big deal because those are, uh, you know, essential. And I think that's actually one of the one of the worst divisions between full time and part time employment in the U.S. is uh, is the employee benefits because they're so deeply entrenched in employer provided health insurance, um, you know, in spite of Obamacare. Um, and uh, I, I think it'll be interesting to see what happens over time. Um, you know, Utah, actually, the state government uh, adopted a four-day work week uh, for about a year. Um, Mm. The legislature actually ended up reversing on this, uh, and it was because a lot of people were complaining about government services not being available on Fridays.
0: Right. It clearly only works for certain roles, and I suspect that's why they're trialing it with HR internally. It's like the kind of thing where it's not customer-facing. You can probably afford to wait a work day to resolve most of these things, and you presume they keep a core of staff that does work five days a week as well.
1: Well, and it also it matters if you have staff that can overlap in responsibilities, and yeah. so if it's like a customer service kind of thing, you know clearly you don't need a particular employee at work. You just need an employee at work to right. manage customer so you customer alternate the days and, that
0: people take off. Yeah,
1: right, but that's not true for other roles, and and so yeah, it you know it'll be interesting to see if it's a trend that picks up. It it, it could, uh, I mean, if enough people did this, you'd see a noticeable bump in employment too and Employment rates in the u s and so it'll be fascinating to see how the experiment plays out but i i'm i 'm predicting that Amazon is going to find good things in it
0: yeah no it'll be interesting to see how that works out okay. the third news roundup topic is um, Instagram introducing these filters, and basically what this means is it applies to comments so this obviously Instagram has always had filters for photos, but we 're talking about filtering comments here um, and for a while now instagram has made available certain filters to Verified users so mostly sort of celebrities that are most likely to attract the largest number of comments and especially for people they don't know Uh, and these filters uh, Combine a sort of blacklist of words that Instagram provides and you can choose to either accept or not and then you can add your own uh, Custom words as well that you want to filter out and so it's a way for people to say if a comment includes these certain words Uh, chances are I don't want to see it. And so it would just not be visible uh, in the comments on a particular photo or video. And so it's now being extended to all users. And it's it's in a fairly reasonable way to deal with the problem of abusive comments and so on. And so if you have a public account on Instagram, uh, you now can take advantage of these tools. And this, to me, at least was interesting, particularly in the context of Twitter, which has this very high profile problem with abuse and harassment and so on. And uh, it's offered some of this to, again, verified users in the past, uh, but hasn't dealt with it very well. And to my mind, the big problem with something like Twitter is that a word that might be offensive to one person may well be a term of endearment to another person. There's lots of examples of that, and I won't list them. but. Um, there are many words which I m- might well find offensive if somebody I knew said them to me, but which other people use uh, very comfortably and banter with each other. And, and so it's very hard to kind of say these words are always bad, or the use of these words should always be uh, considered abuse. And so uh, in Instagram, I suspect it's a little bit different because when you're commenting on a picture, it, it, the context is a little different, but it's an inherently difficult problem. How do you stop abuse before it happens? Because once it happens, deleting it does some good, and and banning the user does some good, but the damage has often already been done. And so Instagram's doing this with uh, comment filtering, and I I wonder if the same approach is probably part of the answer at Twitter, but as I say, I suspect it may be more complex there as well.
1: Yeah, the, the interesting thing to me about this is, and I'm talking anecdotally, I don't know this for sure, but it feels like more people who use Instagram on a personal basis are using it privately meaning that yeah. if you want to follow that person you have to request it and then the person mm-hmm. approves you following them yeah and and so the risk of comments that are offensive seems to go down pretty dramatically for a huge chunk of Instagram users. Um, I, I will say that younger users seem to be more likely to have public profiles than private mm-hmm. ones. Um, versus older users seem to to prefer having a private account. And again, this is all anecdotal based on my observations. But the other thing, you know, Twitter's interesting because the opposite of that is true with Twitter. Most people that use Twitter have public-facing accounts and don't ever bother making it private. In fact, turning your account private usually is a response to abuse rather than an initial decision Mm -hmm. uh, when you set up Twitter or whenever it was years ago that most people set up their Twitter accounts. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and and so it's interesting, right? Because Twitter has even more urgency to solve these, uh, you know, offensive comment harassment problems because people by default are having public facing Twitter accounts. And yet Instagram seems to be a step ahead here, even though it would appear anecdotally that most people, you know, won't actually need it because they don't have people following them that, that are, that are gonna make offensive comments.
0: Right, yeah, no, absolutely. Okay, well, let's move on to our question of the week, and as I said up front, we're talking about Verily this week, which is the alphabet division that previously was known as Google Life Sciences, and the question is simply, what is Verily, and what does it do, and I, I did write a little bit about this for Tech Pinions Insiders on Tuesday in, in, in the context of contrasting uh, Google or Alphabet's approach to healthcare with Apple's, um, you know, which has been mostly focused around things like health kit and research kit. We're not going to talk about the Apple side of things here today. We're just going to focus on Verily because there's plenty to talk about there. But I've been doing the research on this this week, and so Aaron's going to be asking the questions.
1: So Verily is one of those Alphabet companies that I think people know very little about. Yeah, and so let's actually start with the big question. Can you essentially tell us what Verily is and, and what it is that they do?
0: Yeah, so as I mentioned just now, Verily was previously known as Google Life Sciences. So it was part of Google before the Alphabet uh, kind of conglomerate structure was created and uh, was rebranded late last year as Verily, as a standalone company outside of Google, but still under that Alphabet umbrella. Um, It's one of two medical uh, efforts or, or entities within Alphabet. The other one is Calico, and that one is aimed at extending life. We're not going to talk about that one today. That's a whole separate uh, organization within Alphabet, and uh, and we could probably have a long discussion about that. So we're just going to focus on Verily today. Um, the name Verily is interesting. So uh, when they introduced the new naming, there was the usual talk about what the name signifies and so on. And So the CEO of Verily, Andy Conrad, uh, said in, in a couple of interviews that the name is aspirational, Uh, in that only through the truth are we going to defeat Mother Nature. So Verily, obviously, is a reference to truth and so on. It's a word that we don't really use anymore. It's it's familiar from Shakespeare and the King James Version of the Bible and so on, but it's not one that's in current use, but it it has its roots in the word truth. Um, But Conrad also said Verily's focus is about uh, a shift from the way that we've traditionally dealt with medicine, which has been reactive and symptom-based, to uh, an approach that's more proactive and that moves away from intervention to prevention. So a lot of the emphasis at Verily is on early detection and so on. Another way that uh, the CEO has described it is as an R&D partner for pharma. Uh, so in other words, for the big pharmaceutical companies, that this is an R&D partner for certain aspects of what they do, and we'll talk about that in more detail. Uh, the Verily website, Uh, describes it in this way. And the start of this sounds like a bad joke, but it's not. Um, It says, Imagine a chemist and an engineer and a doctor and a behavioral scientist not walking into a bar, but all working together to truly understand health and to better prevent, detect, and manage disease. Picture a world in which technology and life sciences are not distinct, but partners with a united mission. And so... That's really what Verily is about: is combining technology provided by Google and then uh, pharmaceutical uh, and medical expertise provided by by partners and by others, and so on. Although they do some of their own stuff too. So. Uh, Verily has these four divisions, hardware, so it's about making devices of different kinds, software, which is partly about software for those devices, but a lot of it's about behind-the-scenes software, big data, analytics, machine learning, and so on. There's a clinical division, and then there's a science division, and so those four work very closely together and then work with other organizations as well. Um, the CEO is a guy called Andy Andrew or Andy Conrad. Uh, he came, he was previously the chief science officer at LabCorp, big uh, laboratory testing company here in the U S. Um, he, uh, and we'll talk about him a bit more later, but he was a biologist by background and made a lot of money when LabCorp, uh, bought a company that he was part of previously. Uh, and he's been running it basically since the beginning. It was started in 2012. Uh, And he's been the CEO, I think, right from the start. Um, And was started as part of Google X, then became Google Life Sciences, and then became Verily, uh, and a handful of other kind of top people that run those different divisions that I talked about, hardware, software, clinical, and science. A number of those people came from other Google divisions, and then uh, some of them came from outside. So the, the CTO, for example, is a guy called Brian Otis, He was a tenured professor at the University of Washington for seven years before he came to Google. Uh, And then the chief, the medical director is a woman called uh, Jessica Mega, who was a doctor. She was a cardiologist at Harvard Medical School uh, before she came to run uh, a certain chunk of of what Verily does. So about 400 people together from an article that I read uh, dating March. So that's roughly the size altogether. Uh, but that's kind of a quick sort of summary of what Verily is. Um, and really what they do is a combination of projects that they've kind of pursued internally and then uh, projects that they're doing in partnership with other organizations.
1: So, I mean, you talked about internal projects and then partnerships there. So let's take it up first with internal projects. Tell us what's going on inside Verily right now.
0: Yeah, so there's a handful of different internal projects that they've worked on. One of the biggest ones is something called Baseline. And this is one of the... I mean, this is a a characteristic, and we'll talk about this a bit more. um, But Baseline is is one of several very ambitious projects at, at Verily. And this one is really about... Uh, And where the name comes from is it's about establishing a baseline for a healthy human being. Uh, And the intention is to study uh, clinical, molecular, imaging, genetic and microbiome data from 10,000 people or more over five years uh, and sort of track what a healthy body looks like across all those different measurements. Um, and so it's establishing a baseline. So, this is what a healthy body looks like. And then, once you know that, then you know what to look for in terms of aberrations or, or deviations from what that healthy body looks like. And that then helps you detect anomalies and helps you detect the early signs of disease and so on. And so, uh, Jessica who, Mega, who I mentioned is the medical director at Verily and who runs this project. Um, She described it this way, which I thought was a really good description. She said, for example, one day a patient comes to see me, gets a full checkup and says, doc, thanks so much. And then the next day they have a heart attack. It's not that you're healthy until the switch goes on and then you're unhealthy. There's this transition. There are good technologies out there now trying to understand what's going on at the blood vessel level before someone actually comes in with a heart attack. To figure out which one of those early signals is most important will be very helpful. Uh, In other words... There's, you don't go from being healthy one day to having a heart attack the next. The, the things that lead to that heart attack are there. They're just not necessarily detectable uh, through the normal way that medicine's practiced today. And so the idea with this baseline study is to track a whole load of metrics about your body across these 10,000 people, and they are going to be volunteers that sign up for the project uh, to track all this stuff. And then when somebody does have a heart attack, you go back in their data and you say, okay, what was happening in the months and years beforehand that current medicine doesn't recognize as a symptom of heart disease, for example, but that we could now pick up on and then extend to other people and and use as a diagnostic signal um, when trying to look for for symptoms elsewhere. So the Google skill set here is really about collecting and then analyzing that data. So that's the baseline project. That's a really big internal project. Uh, a second one is about two wearable devices, and these are basically wristbands, but they're they're different. One of these uh, was described in the early going as a tricorder. And so if you're a Star Trek fan, uh, you'll know that the tricorder was a sort of medical diagnostic device that they used to kind of scan somebody's body. They can instantly tell what's wrong with them without having to poke and prod and take measurements and so on. And so this, again, very ambitious project is about injecting uh, nanoparticles into the bloodstream. So it's basically iron oxide coated with a variety of different coatings that are designed to glom onto different kinds of cells within the body. Uh, And so they detect cancer and other ailments. And then you wear a wristband that's able to communicate with those nanoparticles and detect what they're finding within the body and do that in real time on an ongoing basis. And so the idea is that's, you know, you've know, you got the baseline study that identifies what to look for. You've got this Tricorder project that's designed to then pick up on those signals from within the body and uh, alert medical professionals or allow medical professionals to look back and say, hey, this seems to be changing over time. We need to check into this a bit more. So that's one of these two wristbands. There's another one that's designed to just monitor skin temperature, pulse, heart activity in general, and so on. That's slightly less, uh, it's less ambitious. Um, the third and perhaps uh, the first one, though, that people might have been aware of Um, is one around smart contact lenses. And so uh, this was developed under Google X. This was kind of the coming out party for Verily was when they announced this. Um, And the smart contact lens was designed to uh, be worn in the eye like a contact lens. Uh, It was announced in January 2014, and the intention was uh, that it would allow uh, to track uh, glucose levels in the body. And obviously, traditionally for diabetics, that's been done by taking blood samples and testing those. The idea here is that you'd wear this smart contact lens throughout the day and it would be constantly measuring glucose levels and there's a little transmitter in there that would alert another device if glucose levels in the tears, which are another way to measure glucose levels, would uh, go over a certain level. And so that was one of the first things that Verily did and it also led to to one of their first partnerships as well.
1: So uh, that's really interesting. Diabetes runs in my wife's family and I I know that that would be a really useful thing to have easier access to glucose measurements. But, but let's talk about, I mean, you indicated that it's happening more in a partnership. So we talked about the internal projects. Tell us more about the partnerships that Verily has going on.
0: Yeah, so there are quite a few of these at this point. It depends exactly how you measure them as to how, how many there are. There are at least seven of these at this point. Um, and the first one, as I mentioned, was a partnership with Novartis, uh, which about six months after that smart contact lens was announced, Novartis, big pharmaceutical company, came along and said they wanted to work with Google at the time on this. Uh, and so Novartis is licensing the smart lens technology from Verily. Uh, in order to create products. Um, and uh, they, they wanted to do this for some time. Google claimed to have made some advances here back in 2014. And so Novartis came along and said, okay, you know, we, we have the expertise to be able to test this, to do clinical trials and all the rest of it, and ultimately to bring it to market. So the two of them announced a partnership, as I say, in July 2014 around that. There's a bunch of other partnerships too, though. So uh, Biogen in January 2015 uh, announced a partnership around multiple sclerosis. Uh, So it's about collecting and synthesizing data from people with MS. And the idea here is that people can present with similar initial symptoms, but then over the course of the next 10 years, one of them could be basically symptom-free and another one could be completely debilitated by the disease. And so what medical researchers haven't been able to establish is why people that seem to have Uh, very similar symptoms to start out with seem to go on very diverging paths from there. And so it's about explaining why MS progresses differently from patient to patient. Uh, And Biogen, which is the partner here, is the market leader in terms of making multiple sclerosis drugs. And there's no cure for MS today. It's mostly just about suppressing the symptoms. And so they're going to be working together to try to understand more about how MS progresses in different patients and why the differences and so on. And so they'll be leveraging some of uh, Google's uh, machine learning and other capabilities through Verily as well um, the third partnership is Dexcom and Dexcom uh, is a company that uh, has specialized in kind of glucose, continuous glucose monitoring, and so this is another area where diabetes is a theme, and you'll see this as a theme throughout these partnerships, but basically in this case, Dexcom made this upfront payment, and make milestone payments during the development, and then make royal, pay royalties to Verily on any products that eventually brings to market. Um, but this is about miniaturized disposable sensors that will be worn on the body, for continuous glucose monitoring. So this isn't necessarily the smart contact lenses, but it takes advantage of the same thing, which in term, in technology terms, which is miniaturization. And this is one of the big things that Verily has worked on from a technology perspective. And, and I mentioned the hardware as one of the four big divisions at Verily. Um, really one of the Google's uh, or or Verily's main contributions to all of this is miniaturization nanotechnology sort of taking technology and making it super super tiny so that it can go into uh, things that are either implanted in the body worn on the body like the contact lenses uh, swallowed or whatever and so there's a whole range of these things and that's a big theme Uh, Johnson & Johnson has a partnership this one's a bit different because it's about surgical robots uh, and so the two, two companies, Johnson & Johnson and Verily, have, have formed a company called Verb Surgical, uh, which is going to develop solutions that bring together robotic capabilities, medical device technology, and various other things to use in surgery. Um, so that's another one. Uh, there is this National Institutes of Health project called the Precision Medicine Initiative. And this is a bit like the baseline project at Google. And so Verily and Vanderbilt University have kind of won the pilot phase of this project from the National Institutes of Health Uh, to track and to to kind of design and then conduct the research and gather data and analyze it. Um, One of the more recent projects was announced last month with GlaxoSmithKline, and this is the creation of uh, a joint venture called Galvani Bioelectronics. Uh, And this is named after uh, an Italian scientist called Luigi Galvani, and he, he was the first to kind of use electronics to do stuff with the human body. And he made a frog's leg twitch by putting electrical current through it, which is mm. where our word galvanize comes from. Um, but anyway, this, this deal with GlaxoSmithKline is $715 million, so a really significant investment by the two companies. It's a seven-year research deal. Um, and uh, in this sort of joint venture, it's going to be owned 55% by GSK and 45% by Verily. Um, it's going to have 30 employees of its own, but it's also going to draw on engineering resources from Verily as well. Um, and so it's bioelectronics. And what that means is um, there are there's an emerging science, which is sort of potentially the next phase after pharmaceuticals, which is about... Uh, understanding uh, neural pathways and understanding how electricity is used to transmit things through the brain and to regulate body functions and so on and once you understand how that works you can also understand how it stops working and how that contributes to disease and symptoms of disease and once you understand that in turn then you can implant devices in the body to regulate those things to kind of stop the wrong signals from being sent and to regulate body functions properly and to basically mitigate and ultimately eliminate the results of certain diseases. And so, um, you know, in the context of reading about this, I, I discovered that I guess back in the 1800s, there were chemical companies that were focused on paint, and they were some of the first companies to start working on pharmaceuticals because they discovered that some of the same techniques and things they were using for developing paint could be used in this way. And the GSK executive that's in charge of this particular project was saying, you know, he sees a similar leap forward being made uh, in this field through bioelectronics. And so it's something that GlaxoSmithKline has been investing in for several years. It's been a focus of uh, Google and Verily as well in this space. And so, GSK will do all the clinical stuff. Uh, they understand the body very well. They have all the people that do all that kind of thing. Uh, but they need Google to create these devices because GSK is not a, not a, an electronics company. They don't understand device miniaturization. They don't understand wireless technology or any of the other stuff that goes into these devices. And so that's why the two companies are partnering because Google will provide the hardware and also the kind of data analytics and everything around it. And GSK will provide the kind of clinical uh, and biological know-how and so on, and and that's how they're going to work together. So, again, diabetes is a focus. Rheumatoid arthritis is another one. Uh, And there were a variety of other uh, diseases and conditions that they were looking at at, uh, investing in over time. But, uh, you know, that's kind of the focus of that particular deal. And then uh, the most recent one, uh, oh, the last thing that's interesting about that one is, you know, we're used to, with pharmaceuticals, the business model is you sell a drug for a certain dose of a drug for a certain amount Health insurance may cover some or all of the cost of it, but then you have to refill that prescription at some point. Well, this bioelectronic stuff is basically implanted in the body permanently. So it's a one-off intervention, and the idea is that it acts as a cure. It doesn't actually cure the disease, but it basically manages the disease in such a way that it feels like a cure. And so the business model will be very different. So instead of some huge upfront payment, the idea is that you might pay on almost a subscription basis. So you make a monthly payment or an annual payment, or your insurance company does that on your behalf and uh, it might even be performance based so if it's managing your condition well you continue to pay if it stops managing your condition effectively then you stop paying basically so lots of interesting stuff kind of coming out of this Um, and then the last partnership is one with sanofi Aventus, or sanofi i guess it's called these days Uh, and this one was just announced this month in september Uh, And they have a joint venture called OnDuo, uh, which is gonna work on comprehensive solutions to assist, again, diabetes sufferers. And so you see diabetes is kind of a a common theme. It was the first area that Verily focused on, and so it's been a major focus for them since. Uh, but again, it's about leveraging Verily's expertise and miniaturization and analytics and software, and then Sanofi's clinical expertise and, and kind of the expertise in uh, testing and then bringing a product to market and marketing it and so on. So that's kind of the last of these big partnerships. So seven altogether. together, um, you know, a whole range of stuff. Diabetes is a big theme, miniaturization is a big theme, and it's typically about marrying Google's expertise or Verily's expertise, leveraging Google's expertise in hardware, miniaturization, uh, software and data analytics, and so on with the sort of pharmaceutical, clinical, marketing, uh, regulatory expertise at these various pharmaceutical partners.
1: The hardware aspect of that is one that's surprising to me I, because we don't typically think of Alphabet as a hardware company. Yeah. Has is, is most of that expertise developed within Verily, do you think, or has Google had sort of hardware projects scattered around that it then pulled into Verily when the Alphabet Uh, restructuring happened.
0: Yeah, it was surprising to me actually too as I was reading about this because it's not primarily a hardware company. It is a software company. So that side makes a ton of sense. But I guess uh, in the early going, and and this is where Andy Conrad, the CEO, uh, he'd worked on a number of devices, uh, projects before at other companies. And so he brought some of that expertise and I guess brought people with him. So I've no doubt that there are some uh, Google sort of uh, sort of field expertise that's being sort of brought into this. But um, ultimately, uh, there's a lot of new expertise there, too. But it, it's interesting. The guy who's running the hardware division is the CTO, Brian Otis. And he came from the University of Washington, where he was a professor. So um, there are a lot of outside people involved here. Although a lot of the initial leaders of the this group came from Google. A lot of them have actually gone back to Google since then. A lot of the people who are in these prominent positions now are people have come in from outside and brought that expertise with them. So I don't sense that in the hardware fields, Verily is taking as much advantage of Google expertise as it is, say, in software.
1: So uh, one last question, I guess. I mean, talking through all their internal projects and all their partnerships, this is surprisingly ambitious. And I would say that especially for... Uh, an other bets company, right? Within Alphabet, they have Google and then all their other bets. And if you look at their other bets, they're characterized differently than the way Verily was just described. I mean, you've got Google Fiber, which seems right now at best kind of a hedge, right? To make sure Google keeps an open internet. Uh, You've got Nest, for example. You've got the moonshot projects like self-driving cars and so forth. Verily seems a lot more ambitious than these other things, in fact, in the sense of all the different areas of health it's reaching into. I mean, how do do those who know Verily see it? I mean, do they see it as this kind of like pie-in-the-sky moonshot thing, the way we see a lot of these bets, or or how how do they perceive Verily?
0: Yeah, and this started out within Google X, which is the moonshot division at uh, Alphabet um, and previously at Google. And so this, this was described as one of the moonshot businesses from early on. So it's definitely best seen, I think, in that light. And there are a couple of things about it that, that really emphasize that. One is that uh, a lot of the stuff has not been done before. They've deliberately not focused on existing fields that are well-developed, but they focus on new stuff, new ways of doing things and so on, which kind of is in Google's DNA. And so that makes sense. But uh, it means that the, you know it is a bet in that sense, uh, or lots of smaller bets on things that may or may not pan out. Um, and the other thing is that you know when you're dealing with the medical field, The timelines are extremely long Um, and so you know the GSK uh, deal that I just talked about in quite a bit of detail that has a 7 to 10 year time horizon in terms of actually getting products to market. Um, and so, you know, Verily is uh, said by Alphabet to be one of the three other bets that actually generates revenue today, along with Nest and Google Fiber that you just mentioned. Uh, but the nature of that revenue is very different. It's largely from licensing and that kind of thing. And then the real money is not going to come until a long way down the line. And it's very simply that's because drug development goes through a very long. Process So you have what's called proof of mechanism is usually the first step. So once you figure out an idea, you kind of prove it out at the chemical level. So you don't even go anywhere near any bodies. You, you basically prove it out in test tubes and so on that, that, you know, adding this drug to this chemical or an individual chemical within your proposed drug to another chemical has a desired effect. So that's proof of mechanism. Then you move on to what's called proof of principle, which is where you do some very early clinical development um, and you basically uh, experiment with you know, the element, you know the active element of your proposed drug on disease biomarkers and do they have the effect there. You don't worry about the symptoms yet, but you just say, uh, again, a chemical level but within somebody's body is it having the desired effect. Then you move on to proof of concept. And if you're from any field other than drug development, proof of concept feels like the first step. But if you'll notice, this is now the third step that I'm talking about. So that's early clinical drug development where phase one usually involves 10 to 20 healthy patients and you just use the drug and see if it has a desired effect within them. Then you move on to phase two A with 100 patients that have the disease. If that works reasonably well, you move on to phase two B, then phase three. And then if everything's working fine after that, you go on to regulatory approvals and then finally to marketing. And so, as I said, with GSK, the project has a 7 to 10 year time frame to get to um, products in market. Uh, and so this super long. And so the other problem, as well as the stuff, the fact that this stuff is high risk in terms of whether it pays off or not, is you won't actually know for a very long time either. Um, but uh, there's a... a, a a news site that's owned by the Boston Globe called Stat News that covers the kind of biotech space. It just is a startup uh, came out last year, and they've kind of one of their big themes has been kind of really being quite critical of Verily, and they found quite a lot of scientists that have either worked with Verily or work in similar fields who have expertise who've been quite critical of uh, Verily and its approaches. Kind of there's this guy from Tufts who's quoted as saying, "This isn't just science fiction; it's science fantasy." Um, whereas least tagline is it's not science fiction it's fact basically Um, so criticizing some of their approaches saying it's not realistic saying that they're going down the same avenues that people have tried to go down before and it's been proven that it doesn't work Uh, with regard to the smart contact lenses in particular um, the uh, The problem is that you're not measuring blood sugar, you're measuring tear glucose levels, and that's not the same thing, and it's not necessarily predictive of the same things as if you are taking uh, blood sugar. And so, again, people have been critical of that whole approach and whether it can even work uh, for for measuring symptoms and measuring glucose levels for, for diabetes sufferers and so on. So there's those criticisms. This whole Tricorder project was one of the first things that uh, Google Life Sciences talked about publicly, aside from the smart contact lens. Uh, But that tricorder concept's gone away. Um, There's been a lot less talk about it publicly. It's still being worked on, supposedly, but there's a lot of people saying that actually, basically, that product has failed uh, within Verily. Um, And so there's a lot of that. And a lot of it's come back to Andy Conrad, the CEO, who is a fantastic marketer but perhaps has a tendency to kind of over-promise and underdeliver. deliver and again Stat News found lots of examples of people who left Verily and interviewed them and just um, dis- you know basically discovered that, that he's really hard to work for, that he's quite whimsical, not whimsical, but that he will do things on a whim. Um, and uh, there was a, a quote from somebody who used to work with him at a different company who said, he, we used to call him the seagull of science. He used to fly in, squawk, crap over everything and fly away. (laughs) Um, And so obviously not very... um not very positive about, about his approach. But this, this seems to be the problem is he's a fantastic marketer, but as a result, often kind of over-promises in his marketing and then can't necessarily deliver or holds teams to ridiculously unrealistic timelines and so on. And so there are these various criticisms of Verily. Clearly, the big pharmaceutical companies that have that have not just partnered with them but put hundreds of millions of dollars into this stuff do believe that there is potential there. So I don't think we can write the whole thing off as fantasy, um, but there are some legitimate criticisms from within the life sciences field. So, um, you know, it's not all hunky-dory and it's not clear that all of what uh, these guys are working on will pan out. Um, And as I said, it's in the very nature of it that it is uh, risky bets and that they are very long-term bets as well. And so, the real answer is we won't know probably for five years whether a lot of the stuff that they're working on either independently or with partners will actually pan out in a meaningful way.
1: Well, that was, that was fascinating. I didn't know any of that stuff about Verily, so those was, was really great information. I guess we'll check back in five years from now. <laughs> so go, yeah. <laughs>
0: Episode 300 or something of the right. podcast, yeah. <laughs> um, by the way, we'll put the sources and so on for a lot of what I've talked about on the website at podcast.beyonddevices, because uh, I, I definitely relied very heavily on a number of interviews and articles and so on that I read, so we'll, we'll put a list of those uh, on the website. Well, let's move on to our third segment, which is a discussion mostly of the iPhone reviews that came out this week, but also some of the software that's released this week as well, and then the Watch uh, Series 2 reviews that came out this week, too. So we'll start off with the iPhone reviews. Aaron, what was kind of your take or or your impression from reading those this week?
1: Well, you know, it's funny because I felt like like deja vu all over again, and I realized that's... Anyway, you know, because it was like every year, every year with iPhone reviews... The, the reviewer basically says, there are some nice improvements. If you have a two-year-old iPhone, this is totally worth it. If you have a one-year-old iPhone, you know, it's, you're know you sort of on the fence as to whether or not it's worth it. Um, it it's, it's been that way since I can remember with iPhone upgrades. Because right. even when they make a big form factor change, a lot of the fundamentals stay the same. Mm -hmm. And it just felt like that all over again this year. I mean, it was was like a chorus, like a a harmony of all these reviewers basically saying the same thing, which was, you know, important, valuable upgrades, but nothing to make you ditch your year old iPhone. Right.
0: Yeah. And there was a real I don't know, I felt there's this palpable sense of boredom from some of the reviewers, too, like, oh, I have to do this again. Um, and it's interesting, I mean, maybe, partly, maybe partly me reading into it, but I've talked to some of these people about, uh, at some of the big news, newspapers, for example, who review this stuff, and I, I've heard from the horse's mouth, You know, I really don't like this, it's one of the least, import, least enjoyable parts of my job, is to review new iPhones, because I've done it so many times, people always want you to say something new and dramatic, and ultimately, the answer's often the same, and so it's very hard to be original. And you really feel that sense coming through in some of these reviews, Whereas I felt with other reviews, they're finding new and interesting ways to do it. So I think the BuzzFeed reviews have been good. I think we've talked about those before. But they tend to be written more from a normal person's perspective rather than from sort of a tech reviewer's perspective. And as a result, often have interesting angles. So that the iPhone review is quite fun this time around and the Apple Watch review is good too. Um, Business Insider did this great thing where they had somebody who's not part of their tech team uh, try out the new AirPods. And if you haven't seen that video, you should go and watch it just because it's good comic value. Uh, this guy was trying everything he possibly could to shake them out. And then they clearly hadn't told them a lot about how they worked either ahead of time. And so you see him kind of discovering various features for himself and, and quite enjoying those. And then another one that's kind of good in that vein was um, Matthew Panzerino at TechCrunch, who's done several good iPhone reviews over the last few years. But he kind of says up front, this is deliberately not a, a classic sort of tech review. This is sort of my view of using it as a normal person and talks about his kids in fairly basic terms as part of the review. And uh, But it ends up being a great review because it's more original. It doesn't seem to feel the need to hew to a particular kind of... Uh, version of what a tech review looks like Um, and as a result is much more interesting than some of the other stuff that you'd read
1: and but I mean doesn't that say a lot about the product and I would say I would say not just the iPhone but the entire category smartphones are pretty mature now I mean you know the this form of them which kicked off with the iPhone nine years ago this form of product you know this product category is I mean it's so mature now that that the way people are innovating the way people are getting you engaged is by approaching the review in a unique or interesting way, rather than just having new or, or interesting things to talk about with the actual phone. And, yeah, oh. and I just think it's that way in the foreseeable future. You know, I think as a category, mm-hmm. it's it's pretty robust, and every year yeah. it's going to be the incremental thing. And and quite frankly, that's okay because all that stuff mm-hmm. adds up. Adds up to, you know, these amazing devices we get to carry around with us all day, and, and that's right. that's not a that's not a small thing that's a really big deal but it's just so funny to me that you know people are and i I think it's awesome the way that people are coming up with creative reviews i think they're definitely Mm -hmm. a lot more entertaining i remember when the verge started doing like you know these these fantastic video reviews right where Mm -hmm. they were doing really nice product photography and and very thoughtful approaches and I think all that's great, but I think it also just speaks to the fact that this is a category that we're not going to see huge leaps in probably ever again. Right.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, One other thing I thought was interesting in the context of people trying to find something new to talk about was that the headphone jack was often the first thing that was talked about and often in quite a bit of detail. And often that was paired with a review of the AirPods. It was kind of interesting to me that Apple shipped the AirPods with the iPhones with these reviewers, even though they're not going to be available until October. Usually... Reviews for Apple products come out within a week or two uh, before they actually become available to the public and I Suspect they ship the AirPods as a way of saying, you know This is kind of why we're removing the headphone jack because this is the future and so on the problem is that people I saw lots of reviewers making reference to the fact that they were slightly buggy And these were pre-production, and hopefully this gets solved. But there was a sort of a double-edged sword there, where on the one hand, I think Apple wanted to have something to mitigate the concerns about the headphone jack. And on the other hand, they shipped something that perhaps wasn't 100% ready yet, and that then got criticized. And so I'm not sure if there was a net positive for Apple or not, but I'm sure it was frustrating to them to see just how much ink was spilled on the headphone jack being taken away and then on the AirPods, rather than getting to the positive features and upgrades in the new phones.
1: Well, it's funny you say that because I saw almost nobody talk about the lightning ear pods that come with every yeah. iPhone. Mm-hmm. I mean, nobody actually sat down to say, hey, these work great. They're fine. You know, like you're going to be happy right. with them or anything like that. Yeah. And yeah. yet, that's going to be the, the vast majority of the user's mm-hmm. experience. They're going to get these lightning ear pods with their headphones, they're going to, or with their iPhone, they're going to plug it in, and, and, and that's going to be how they use their iPhone especially because most iPhone users, use, my iPhone users are using the EarPods anyway, and switching from a, a, you know, a headphone jack to a, a lightning jack is not gonna make all that big of a difference for most people. Right, right. Um, I, I, you know, the, the one thing that stood out to me in all of the, the AirPod reviews was how annoying it is to have to control the volume with either your phone or with Siri, yeah. um, that there's no volume control uh, mm-hmm. that involves just touch. With the AirPods, and, and that to me, I, I, I have a hard time imagining that not bothering me if I was using yeah a, you know, Or even play
0: pause either. I mean, you can pull one out of your ear, but why should right. you have to do that if you're, you know, if you've got an incoming, well, I guess you've got an incoming call, it'll probably pause the music anyway. But if there's some other reason why you want to pause it without having to take it out of your ear, there's no way to do that either.
1: Yeah. And part of the appeal of the earpods is the remote. I mean that's right. I think that's that's been one of the best parts of having earpods. and I think it's a reason a lot of people have stuck with them is not just that they came in the box, but they're, they're genuinely useful, being able to pause, being able to call up Siri, being able to increase and decrease the volume. Without having to actually say something, to me it just seems silly that you have to, you know, that they're recommending that you call up Siri to change the volume, especially because I what I don't get is how does Siri know how to change the volume to the level I want? Do I have to tell Siri three times to increase the volume? Well, that's what I that's, wanted about too. It's to tedious. Yeah. So,
0: mm-hmm. yeah, no, absolutely agreed. I mean, they have uh, they have these motion accelerometers in them, I guess, which is what responds to the double tap to invoke Siri, and so in theory, at least. You would think that the software could be updated, although I don't know how you'd plug it in to update the software. I mean, maybe it updates through your phone, presumably, right. but um, it'll be maybe it'll work like the watch updates to do, which works through the watch app on the phone. But um, you know, in theory, at least they could say, well, three taps is pause, or, or three taps is up the volume, and one tap is volume down, or whatever. And you know, it seems like it's something they could kind of fix later. But yeah, it does surprise me that we've kind of lost the control, especially since there's still this big dangly bit that hangs down to act as the microphone for calls and so on. You know, there's room for something like that, uh, either in software or hardware, and, and they don't seem to have done it, which it's just funny because pretty much every other Bluetooth headset you've ever used has some kind of controls on it uh, for that kind of thing. So it feels like an odd omission. Anything yeah. else you want to say about the well, iPhones? And,
1: and I would say and in defense of Apple with the, with the AirPods, most Bluetooth headphones uh, have pretty terrible volume controls as well. Right? They have either something that's really fiddly touch or you have to make sure you remember which button because you can't see it, right? You're picking right. a button that's attached to the side of your head. And mm-hmm. so it's not like there's a best-in-class um, you know, standard uh, when it comes to managing volume with uh, Bluetooth headphones. Now, that's, that's not true for the ones that sort of have a cord that drapes around because a lot right. of those have the inline controller built into that cord. Mm-hmm. Um, But anything that's actually on the ear, uh, I haven't experienced anything that works really well that way.
0: Right. Um, So let's just talk briefly, and we're kind of a little short on time, so I don't want to talk for a long time, but... Um, watch reviews came out as well, and then the new software came out. I, you've been using iOS 10 since the public beta started, so have I. I've been using WatchOS, for the past, WatchOS 3 for the past week or so. Neither of us has used either of the new hardware products, so hopefully in the next few days we'll do that, we might talk about that on a future episode. But any thoughts about all the rest, anything that sort of stood out to you?
1: Um, you know, I, uh, there's not a whole lot to say about the Series 2 watch, and that's just because there wasn't a whole lot added. Mm-hmm. i think a lot of people see the double-edged sword of gps and there was reviews i noticed that limited the the battery life drain which i mean all of us knew was going to be a problem to begin with right. um I, I, on the ios 10 side you know it's funny because when you start using I, I when you start using the new version of ios um it's hard to remember what came new with it and what's been around for a couple generations That said, I did notice one great update Um, and you know now that iOS 10 has launched a whole bunch of app developers are pushing out updates that are taking advantage of iOS 10 features and the email app that I use uh, on on my iPhone and iPad uh, changed, Uh, I use Spark email and now when notifications come up it actually gives you within the notification a full preview or a relatively full preview of the email rather than just the first couple lines and and that's, that's pretty handy. I think it's cool. And so mm. I expect that, you know, I'm going to see more of this. Like all this stuff that was new with iOS 10, especially notification screen and other stuff, that's all stuff I got used to, so it's hard to remember what was different before, which is right. funny how easily we get accustomed to the changes. But I think we're also going to see a lot of it Cool things come out because app developers are taking more advantage of things uh, now that iOS 10 is official. I did notice uh, there was a great, there was a MacRumors uh, Mac piece on iOS 10 adoption, and it looks like iOS 10 adoption is setting new records. In fact, it's now on, according to this MacRumors article, it's now on 14 and a half percent of iOS devices, which, yeah. when you consider it's been a day, is is mm-hmm. pretty awesome.
0: Yeah, I did. I did. I gathered some numbers earlier today. And basically, ballpark, um, iOS gets as much adoption every two hours for a new version as Android versions do in a month. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So within the first 24 hours, it's within a couple of percentage points of where Marshmallow is having been released 11 months ago. Yeah. Um, wow. So that's kind of a great illustration of that, and I kind of tweeted that out and get the usual pushback from people saying this isn't fair. It's not Google's fault. No, it's, kind of, it's not relevant if you're a user. That's the story. Yeah. <laughs> you can deal with it. But uh, yeah. but it's funny how defensive people can be about this stuff. But um, no, I mean it was interesting to see a whole flood of new app updates uh, on the day that the software came out from people integrating iMessage, doing new things with Watch. Uh, offering widgets um, and new 3D touch interactions and so on. There's so much, uh, you know, Maps integration, Siri integration. There's a whole bunch of, I think I had 40-something updates and just when I checked yesterday afternoon on the day that iOS 10 came out um, from apps that were incorporating new features that are in iOS 10. So, um, you know, there's a lot of that happening, which is a really good sign because Apple's asked developers to do a lot over the last few years with new devices and, and features and so on. And so it's promising that so many apps have bothered to take make the effort to to update to support these new features and so on so I thought I was good. All right well I think we'll we'll end there in the interest of time with that discussion there's probably plenty more we could talk about um, we did have a discussion about many of these things already uh, in our sort of WWDC recap episode, which I think was probably around episode fifty-one, so if you missed that conversation, go back and have a listen to our WWDC episode. Um, let's wrap up with our weekly pick. And so, if you haven't listened to us before, this is where we take an turns to recommend something that we've you've used or enjoyed recently, and we think our listeners might enjoy too. So, Aaron.
1: Well, I'm, uh, this week I'm recommending a, an animated TV series called Gravity Falls. Um, this is a series that ran on Disney XD, their cable channel. Uh, it's about two twins, 12 uh, year olds, that spend their summer in a place called Gravity Falls, which is in Oregon. And it's, it's sort of like a cartoon version of X Files. Um, you know, it's a so, so way to think of it is like X Files, but for kids, it is really entertaining and fun um you know what happens is that the the brother and sister spend their summer essentially trying to uncover the secrets of Gravity Falls to try to figure out why it's such a weird place and all along the way they encounter really funny interesting characters and uh, it's 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 a it's a genuinely fun show I, I think one of the sad things though and i guess i have to add this warning before anybody takes me up on the recommendation one of the sad things about it is that uh the show only had two seasons and and then was discontinued alex hirsch the creator kind of explained it to the loyal followers of the show that you know he never really intended this to be a long-running series it was intended only to be the snapshot of this one summer that this crazy summer that these kids had um it's been a really fun show to watch with my kids and you know my 14 year old likes it just as much as my 10 year old does and and my wife and I also really enjoy it. In fact, my wife changed the theme song. There, she changed her ringtone to the theme, on her iPhone to the theme song of Gravity Falls. So, uh, okay. just it's it's really that good and it's really funny. They've had uh, a lot of great uh, guests. You know, voices come in: Will Fort, uh, uh, J.K. Simmons, um, Nathan Fillion, uh, uh, Louis C.K. Um, Anyway, you get the idea. Larry King, like they had, a, they basically over the two seasons have a bunch of stars show up to play these funny, uh, you know, temporary roles, like as cameos, and uh, it's it's just it's really funny, really creative, and actually you, you you learn to love the characters really fast, and the story progresses. So it's not like each episode is is just this own little weird snapshot, like a lot of kids' cartoons can be these days. It actually has a story that builds episodically and so it draws you in even more so the show is gravity falls it's available for purchase in all the standard places digitally but also if you subscribe to hulu you can get both seasons there
0: great thank you aaron we'll put a link to that on the website as usual um just this week i've updated our listing of weekly picks which is on the website so you can go and see all our past weekly picks Um, And I also put up for the first time a listing of all our questions of the week and the episodes that they're covered in. So you can go back and check those out as well. We're also soliciting uh, requests for future questions of the week. I've got some good suggestions on Twitter already in the last couple of days. So uh, feel free to uh, hit us up on Twitter, Jan Dawson or Aaron Miller, um, or uh, leave a comment on one of our episodes on the website, and we'll pick it up that way. But uh, thanks for being with us again. Again, all the links to stuff we've talked about will be on the site at podcast.beyonddevices and we will be with you again next week. Thanks.